any of us who've been in it for long enough, our entire career has been littered with jobs that we didn't get, projects that we thought were going to go for sure, dozens of unproduced scripts littering the floor. All of us are running into both major and minor failures in Hollywood every single day. For every success, there is months, sometimes even years, of painful failure. This is one of the only businesses I can think of where failure is the default. That's the norm. You have to be able to persevere. Like everything in our business, your hands get callous and it all bounces off you. Uh, you know, that process takes years. That doesn't happen overnight. I was being told by my manager, it's yours to lose. And I promptly lost it. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, well, that's it for me. I blew my one big shot. What I've realized from that moment is it's never one big shot. There will be other shots. Screaming into the Hollywood Abyss is brought to you by Scriptation, the Emmy award-winning app that instantly transfers your notes into new drafts in seconds. Scriptation allows you to digitally mark up scripts, separate notes into layers, track changes across revisions, and so much more. Insert Noah saying something nice about scriptation. Dan, I think this is where they actually want me to talk about how much I love it. And I do love it. It's great. It's collating function transformed me from the messiest writer in Hollywood to, well, ever so slightly less messy. My wife might have other things to say about that. Sitha listeners can get a free month of scriptation by going to scriptation.com backslash Sitha. Uh, for those of you who don't understand slightly drawly American accents, that's scriptation.com backslash S-I-T-H-A. Welcome to Screaming into the Hollywood Abyss, a podcast about rejection, failure, and adversity in Hollywood. Unfortunately, we don't have Dan today. He's doing something fancy with his in his non-industry day job. But as always, I am your industry co-host, Noah Epsilon. On today's podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce journalist, screenwriter, TV writer, and showrunner Cheo Hodari Coker to the podcast. After a long career in journalism, he segued over to screenwriting. Cheo wrote on such shows as Southland, NCIS LA, Almost Human, and Ray Donovan, amongst others before creating and showrunning Luke Cage for Netflix. He also wrote or co-wrote such feature films, Straight Outta Compton, All Eyes on Me, Legend, A Bob Marley Story, Rapper's Delight, Orange Curtain, Flow, Creed Two, Notorious, and Lowriders, amongst many others with a lot more projects in development. Welcome, Chael. Thank you. Um, it's really good to be here. It's Sometimes it's daunting because it's like, we always spend times talking about um, our triumphs rather than our failures. But as somebody somewhere elegantly said, you know, like you probably learn more from your failures than you learn from your triumphs. And so um, I do this and talk about these things, um, hopefully in a way that helps people understand that the writing process even when it's successful at times can be painful and that we all have gone through it. And so, you know, if this is the thing that helps somebody not give up or, you know, not quit, then I'm hoping to be that light if, if that's helpful. 
And I, you know, I love the way I've been, you know, you've not, you and I have known each other for a few years. I think we kind of met over social media. And as we were getting this podcast going, you were one of my early targets for a guest because of the way that you do speak to the fans and talk to the fans when they have questions. And you're fairly candid about your journey, you know, over social media saying like, hey, I'm willing to share some of the trials and tribulations that I have faced. And obviously that's what this podcast is about is sort of sharing trials and tribulations. But let's, you know, start at the beginning. Uh, let's give a sense, you know, a lay of the land. You you had a very successful career as a journalist. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then what happened inside of you that made you decide, hey, I'm going to leave this, you know, successful thing that I'm doing, working for all of these magazines and and newspapers and, you know, try to join the sort of crazy world of Hollywood screenwriting? Well, when I first started writing about hip hop, um, I don't want to say it was the infancy of hip hop because it wasn't. Um, my generation of writers, whether it's myself, Rob Marriott, Elliot Wilson, um, Sasha Jenkins, um, Karen Good, you know, you know, that kind of um, generation of hip hop journalists, I want to say is really like the early 90s. And um, the thing was, was, OK, I started writing for Vibe magazine from its third issue. Um, I was a writer for The Source, Rap Pages, got my start at the Bomb Hip Hop magazine when I was still in college. Um, the thing was, was when you were writing about hip hop, it was because you were a true believer. It was from the standpoint of like you felt that if The Source's mission, when it was pure, was it was the magazine of hip hop, music, culture, and politics. You felt like this is my generation's chance to talk about what's going on. And as a journalist, you wanted to be a part of that. If you want to call it new journalism, like this is a great documentary on Netflix about Tom Wolfe. Um, that's kind of how we felt we were. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like we were like Vice Magazine before Vice Magazine, just in terms of how close we were to the culture. And the opportunities we had to talk to, you know, Snoop and and Dre and, you know, uh, Gangstar, Nas from the very beginning, Wu-Tang. I mean, you name it, like in the 90s. Um, I can it's easier for me to tell you who I haven't interviewed rather than who I did. I mean, one of the only interviews I didn't get to was Tupac. But um, my best friend, Rob Marriott, did talk to Tupac. I was the last person to talk to Notorious B.I.G., as a journalist, actually, had he called me back, I would have been in the car, um, you know, the night that he was um, murdered um, because I was writing a cover story for him uh, about him for Vibe magazine at the time. I was moonlighting for LA Times. So it could have gotten me fired. But, you know, again, true believer. And so the thing was, was that um, on one hand, it was I don't want to say it's lucrative. But I mean, I got to a point where I got to the level where I was making like 250 a word, which at that, you know, back then was like you were that was kind of the, the upper level of what you could earn as a, as a journalist. Um, you know, I was writing for Premier Magazine for a few other places. But the main thing for me was that um, it got to be real competitive in terms of magazines banging on other magazines. Like if you wrote for Vibe, you probably after a while were not going to write for Double XL. If you were writing for Double XL, you definitely weren't going to be writing for the source. There was all these kinds of clicks and competitions, even though all of us writing these magazines, we all know each other. We're all friends. We're all part of the same, you know, collective. I, I don't I don't want to know if you want to call it fraternity or sorority, because there are, you know, I, I wouldn't 
classify it by sex. I would, I would classify it by calling. We were all a part of something. And we were, even though we were rival com- competitors, we're all friends. But the thing was that I noticed in Hollywood, because I was one of the only journalists out of L.A. that was also writing for New York Publications, was I noticed that like Warner Brothers doesn't care if you're writing for Fox. Fox doesn't care if you're writing for Sony. You know what I'm saying? Whereas there was a lot more restrictions, not to mention the fact that, you know, one of the main things that kicked me over the edge was when Ben Ramsey um, sold the big hit. Um, because that spec was a huge spec sale, particularly for a young black writer. And also he had, I think, um, Blunt Force was another one that he'd sold. Um, I think at the time was the script that the Notorious B.I.G. was attached to before he died. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm over here competing with all my friends for the same $5,000 article cover story when I could be in Hollywood making half a million dollars writing a script. How do I get in? You know, Um, I was lucky in that I didn't have to find somebody that I knew that was a screenwriter. My uncle, Richard Wesley, um, my uncle through marriage, he, he married my aunt Valerie, my, my mother's older sister. Um, he is in, as a screenwriter, he wrote Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again. You know, the um, Sidney Poitier, Bill Cosby, classic comedies of the 70s. And um, also, you know, wrote has written feature films like um, whether feature films released in theaters or and also cable films like in parts of four, four decades. I mean, Rich is like an is an icon, honestly. Um, and I was lucky enough to basically watch him write and to when I had questions like, you know, he would teach me things from the writing perspective about film. And then, um, you know, my foray into screenwriting kind of happened by accident. I mean, I was, you know, I was first approached by this. This is how how long ago this was. Brian Robbins, who's the current um, president of Paramount, right? Back in the day, of course, he he was before he was a um, a well known actor, like from Head of the Class. He also really rose his prominence as a director. You know, Hardball was one of his movies. Um, Varsity Blues was one of his movies. And he had a production company with um, Mike Tolan. And so it was Tolan Robbins. And they also had a management firm. And so, for example, they managed together um, with Michael Goldman, who was a former ICM agent who became a manager over there. Um, they were the first managers of like Keenan and Kel and Nick Cannon. So I've known Nick since he was like, I, I want to say he was like 15 years old, 16 years old, just running around the office. And I was one of the first writers that they signed because um, they said, hey, we like your articles. You know, you probably could possibly have a future writing screenplays. And so Mike Goldman, um, shout out to Mike, was incredibly instrumental early on in my career. But I was just trying to kind of figure things out. And I was at the L.A. Times and and beyond moonlighting for the hip hop magazines. I was I used to write for the pop music section of the L.A. Times and. You just get to a point where you're just like, wait a minute, like I'm covering the Hughes brothers and hanging out with them. Um, I'm just beginning to meet, you know, someone who became really my mentor um, and really close friend, John Singleton. And, you know, um, I'm also thinking, of course, of Theodore Witcher, who, of course, wrote and directed Love Jones. And all these young brothers are my age. And I got to a point where I was like, 
do I really want to spend the rest of my life in a cubicle covering people who are following their dreams or do I want to try to do it myself? Um, so that, yes, there was the money factor. There was the people that I was covering as a journalist that were actually my age or my peer group doing the thing and actually out there. And um, it was just a combination of all those factors and the fact that my uncle, you know, was doing it. So, you know, it all kind of converged. Um, it was a couple of things. There was one story I can tell um, that I'll tell in a second about how what finally pushed me over. But there's the actual practical story of how I became a writer in terms of Hollywood stuff is um, Connie Brooke wrote an article for The New Yorker about uh, Tupac. It was one of the most definitive Tupac articles that occurred after, you know, of course, he died. And when I read it, my uncle also read it because we happened to be I happened to be in my uncle's house in, in Jersey. And um, he read it. And his reaction was when reading it was like, wow, like it's clear to me that Suge Knight must have been involved in um, Tupac's murder. And I'm having covered pop music, having been around Death Row Records, you know, kind of like I was on the Death Row beat, me, Chuck Phillips, um, P. Frank Williams. I mean, we were all over all the events, the, you know, the concerts at at Death Row Records, you know, it, um, at Can-Am Studios, all that shit. I was like, nah, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. And what, I'm not going to com completely disclose what I said because I don't feel like getting sued. But I said, it's not that simple. That conversation led to us fictionalizing the hip hop business at the time um, and a script that we co-wrote called Flow. Um, and so what happened was my uncle at the time was writing, um, I think he was writing Mandela the Clerk for, for Showtime. So he was busy. He, he was busy the way that I'm busy right now, where I'm like constantly working on stuff. And, and, you know, so we're talking, we're talking about like, he's kind of showing me how to plot and, and it's a different writing muscle than as a journalist or anything else. So he's showing me how to do that. Really, the Godfather, honestly, you know, taught me everything in terms of um, expositionary dialogue. Um, Michael, who's that strange man, you know, speaking? His name is his name is Luca Brasi. He works for my father. You know, it's like there's not, you know, the difference between a baptism and a um, a wedding. So for us, our parlance, a wedding is any scene where you have all of your main characters in one place in different parts of. Of, of a party, but you're introducing the audience to them. A baptism is an intercut sequence where action is occurring while one central stream or event is happening. So like he's basically teaching me because I've been watching The Godfather my whole life, but now he's teaching it for, to me from a screenwriting perspective. And so, you know, we plot out flow. He gets busy. I write uh, together. I think we wrote about maybe 60, 65 pages. And um, a lot of stuff was going on, like, you know, two bad breakups. Um, you know, I leave the L.A. Times and nothing's going right in terms of like, you know, working. And I didn't realize at the time, but I think I was kind of depressed. Um, I was ironically through Tolan Robbins. Um, one thing I got assigned was an episode of Cousin Skeeter. And I was supposed to write this episode of Cousin Skeeter. And, and I just was thinking about it, thinking about it. And then finally, you know, I, I moved back to Connecticut, even though I kept my L.A. apartment. And one day I called um, my, my manager and I said, well, you know, um, what's going on with Cousin Skeeter? Like, you know, because I could use the money. And he said, oh, well, 
when you never turn in the outline, if we just figured that you weren't going to do it. So we've already reassigned it. And I realized at that moment and that one second that this whole thing could go away. Any opportunity I have to do anything can go away. And so, you know, and this is at, at this point because of the breakup I was in without naming names, getting all that shit. You know, I was, you know, I don't smoke or drink, but I was watching television like 18, 20 hours a day. I was, I just was just, you know, not doing anything. And when that moment happened, I said, you know what? Let me go to sleep. I'm going to get up in the morning and let me attack these cards that my uncle and I had together. Let me see how much more of the script there is. And then I just got up and I just, you know, I, I don't know if you want to play, you know, um, Bill Conti's Alone in the Ring like Rocky, but click. Something clicked in my brain that said, let me sit my ass down. Let me write. And so that's what I started doing is I just started writing, you know, um, and all these kind of self-help. I mean, I've been really self-help. These quotes behind me are all these different quotes that I would take out of creative screenwriting um, to inspire me. Um, because knowing that other writers have their own way of getting through this, um, those were the things that I was kind of cutting up and putting on my wall and then writing. And so eventually what happened was Rich and I wrote 60 pages together. I wrote, I want to say I went crazy. I, I wrote like a 130 more pages, got to the very end of the script, way too many pages, but there was something there. And then I, I go to Jersey um, and Rich is like, well, yeah, like, okay, you're serious about this shit. He, I mean, he knew I was serious, but he could see, okay, yeah, you, re you really are doing the work. And so then together we pared it down and rewrote each other, you know, Coppola Puzo style. And that became flow. And then John Singleton, you know, who I was friends with, you know, um, he was in Florida at the time. I mean, you, you have to understand this is presumed free, whatever. And he was like, yeah, he's like, he, knowing John, he probably would, probably had some girl in New York. He wanted to see, he needed an excuse. He said, he said, he said, yo, if, if I come reach you know, um, I'm really interested in what, in what you're saying about the script. Like, you know, um, can I come read it? I said, sure, man. So, so John literally flies to New York. I mean, I want to think that Flo was the excuse, but knowing John, it was some, it's somebody out there, right? So he flies up to New York. He comes to, to Montclair, New Jersey, to my uncle's house, and he reads the script. Um, at the time, I'd already sent the, the draft to um, ICM, and they were like, this is, you know, it's a good script. You know, it's interesting. I, you know, you made great progress. Congratulations. Mike Goldman was also really encouraging. Yeah, you're like, yeah, this is great. But I think this is interesting. John reads it, sits in my uncle's living room, reads the script in one sitting, loves the script, attaches himself to direct. And then all of a sudden, ICM is like, we want to attach Oliver Stone. We're going to this. I'm like, I already promised it to John. This is what we're doing. And that was scary shit, because all of a sudden, the script that was just kind of like interesting all of a sudden became this thing. And then um, John attached himself. We sold it to the new line. And um, there it has sat for the last 20 years. <laughs> but, but, you know, and essentially, you know, Empire, uh, you know, I'm not saying the Empire was based on flow, but because we did a Godfather like look at the at the African-American music industry and hip hop and with the past and present, like that was what we did 10 years before. It, to me, it's it's basically my platoon because um, Oliver Stone, when he wrote Platoon, it took him years to get that script made. 
And for me, flow is one of those things that ultimately at some point I'm going to rework it and um, get it made somewhere. I promised my uncle to do it. I'm, it's going to happen because it's just it's a good script and it's one of my favorites. But that's how I got started was was doing that. And that and from flow um, and selling that um, November, you know, got announced on November 12th, 1998. <laughs> you know, that was kind of the real start of a lot of things. Um to me, okay, this is the irony of it all. Okay, when Get on the Bus came out, um, the Spike Lee movie that he independently financed and the movie that he made about the uh, Million Man March that starred Andre, you know, Andre, the late Andre Brower and, and a really a, Oz, the late Ozzie Davis and a slew of African-American talent. Um, Reggie Rock Bythewood wrote that movie. Spike directed it. Um, he independently financed it with through African-American investors. It was kind of, for us, a big deal. So that movie comes out in 96. And um, John invited me to go see it at the uh, Cinerama Dome on Sunset Boulevard. And so I go with John. We see the movie. And when we get out of the movie, um, we run into Reggie Hudlin. We, um, okay, who, as a director... Um, of course, directed Marshall at, yeah, about Thurgood Marshall with Chadwick Boseman also was uh, the producer of Django Unchained, um, you know, and also has produced like the, the Oscars and a bunch of other shit. I mean, R Reggie's the man. Um, Rusty Cundiff, who I don't know if you guys remember the movie Fear of a Black Cat back in the day, but Rusty was it. But he's also another director who was who was there. And Mario Van Peebles, of course, um, Mario most famously directed New Jack City. But his, um, as an actor, I mean, he's also one of Michael Mann's close friends. So he, Mario pops up all over the place. Like he, he, it's Mario playing Malcolm X in Ali with Will Smith. I mean, and Mario also as a director, I mean, he's does a lot of television. He's done great films. Besides New Jack City, he did Posse. Like he's just the man. So all of us are talking and Mario invites all of us to his place. And so you know, we all go up there and we're just film geeks. And so I'm just lucky enough to be there just along for the ride. I'm still a journalist at this point. And, you know, John and Rusty and, and Reggie and Mario and all of us really, but just kind of more of them just talking about the films they want to make and what they want to do and how they're going to do things. It was just so invigorating. It was one of the most incredible creative moments I've ever witnessed. It was it was beautiful, honestly. And then Melvin Van Peebles, who's Mario's dad, who, of course, directed Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. You know, he, he hears so much laughter in the kitchen. He comes down three o'clock in the morning, comes down and, you know, it's Mario Van Peebles and he's hanging out. I get home back to the valley of my little North Hollywood apartment around probably like five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, this is what I want to do with my life. I, I want to be a writer. I want to eventually be a director. And I realized, like I said earlier, but th this is probably a better version of this to use that, uh, you know, I could either spend my life in a cubicle writing about people living their dream or I can actually try to live my dream. And so that to me was the moment that I said, you know what, I, I got to figure out how to do some of this other shit. And then that, of course, led to um, flow and, and a bunch of other directions. But but yeah, but the combination of both those things is kind of, is kind of how I ended up, you know, here, so to speak. The, the thing you said about, you know, segueing from one career to another is the journalism to screenwriting obviously is going to resonate to some of our listeners who have 
most of them have some of them have other careers and they're they're if they're thinking if they're listening to this podcast they are thinking about making the jump into Hollywood with all the fears or they already have and I think what you said about going through that period of time where you're sitting on the couch and you 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 had a choice in that moment you could end your career before it really even started or you could get up and do the work and you said you did the work and it led to flow so my question now is you know, we I listed off some of your credits. Now you have like thirty times more stuff you've worked on that I didn't get to in that introduction. You've done a lot of work since nineteen ninety eight, since this when you told the story. But has there any other times in your career where you sat back down on that couch and you're like, "I am done with this," and something made you get back up, or was it has it been pretty consistently? You're doing this, and you're going to continue doing this until the end. <laughs> I'm laughing because like. Uh... Yeah, like you go through these different segues and these different moments and these different peaks and valleys. Like um, there was, uh, I mean, okay, this is good to kind of talk about. Um, I'll talk about process and I'll also talk about failure um, because both teach you how to do both. All right, so perfect example. It's like um, I have ADHD and like most Gen X people, I've just, you know, never non-medicated. You just learn to, to deal with it. Um, and so part of what it is, is like you invent all these different obstacles to prevent you from writing. And so now at 51, I'm a lot better about starting and about doing things and realizing like how to kind of combat that in ways that I didn't before. For me, running and running marathons has helped me because it's the only thing analogous where it's the small building blocks. It's it's the it's the the three mile run when you don't feel like running that helps you get in shape to do the longer runs and ultimately build up to the big event. And you realize that I didn't feel like running three miles, but you know I did it. It helps you realize, okay, I don't feel like writing right now, but I'm gonna get some pay. You know, I'm gonna get some pages done. The thing that happens with a lot of people is that they try to run marathons when they haven't done any training runs. They say, I'm gonna take the entire weekend off. I'm gonna take three days, you know, because Sir Stallone wrote Rocky in three days. I can write a movie in three days. And they get into it and they get to about page seven and they spin out and they realize how hard this shit is. And then all of a sudden they discourage themselves. They're like, this is impossible. And my thing is like, don't think about all this time. What you have to focus on is just consistently every day, write 300 to 500 words. What I mean by that, okay, back in the day when I write a record review, record review is 250 words. And so when I get stuck, I'm like, a 250 words is essentially one page of a screenplay. So I realized, you know what? If I'm stuck, just write, just write a record review. It's not daunting. You can do it. Just one little piece. And... <clears throat> You just got to keep going. And it's just these little things because you're not, you never find the time. And once you got a job, once you got kids, I mean, it's impossible. So you have to find these little pockets of time to write and to Jedi mind trick yourself into writing these little pieces. And if you condition yourself to do that, you'll be in better shape to actually write more substantially. Um, and so that's to say, it's like, you know, one of my favorite analogies, and I'm, I'm, I'm known for like I 
I'm constantly making analogies, particularly with film stuff. There's a scene in, in the first X-Men movie um, where um, Hugh Jackman is sitting with Anna Paquin um, and she asks him about his claws and, he, and, she, and she says, you know, he pops him and she says, does that hurt? And he says every single time. And that's my analogy for what it's like to write. Whether I'm, you know, back in the day when I was writing in a coffee shop to now where I've got an office and, you know, even though we're in my home office right now, but I've got an office like around the corner, it's still painful. This job sucks. It's not going to not suck, but you, you know, to paraphrase one of these books has really helped me. You learn to embrace the suck. You learn to get past that. Um, you know, and so part of what it is, part of what your job is, is, is just finding the little ways to kind of keep going. Um, perfect example. It's like, I, I remember, um, cause it happens a lot of times I got paralyzed, um, writing wise. Okay. Coming off of Luke Cage, um, and after Creed, I did a draft or was working on a draft of, of five brothers, the sequel to four brothers. I was rewriting it for John. Um, John passed away, um, you know, very tragically. Um, you know, he had a stroke and, and his hypertension, you know, he passed away while I was still working on the draft. Um, and then at the same time was also working on a Gucci main script for, for Imagine. And both were taking longer than they should have. And it just got to a point where I was just like, I think in my mind, I was grieving John and working on five brothers was like trying to confront work. You know, the fact that my friend and I were, were going to do this project and it didn't get done. So it got easier to push that off. I'm still on. Um, I'm not on Luke Cage anymore, but I'm still working on projects at the time for my overall for Amazon. So I'm sure people are just like, yeah, what the fuck ever you're getting paid. Cry me a river. But you have all these different things happening and the pandemic happens. And what happens with the pandemic is like when the pandemic first happens, everyone's like, Oh my God, Hollywood is dead. That's reaction. Number one reaction. Number two is all of a sudden, every single executive in town finally has the time to read. And all of a sudden, everybody wants every script now. And so I went through this moment when I was basically writing both scripts simultaneously. And, you know, like I've someone said it best, um, writing in Hollywood is a pie eating contest where the reward is more pie. <laughs> and when you're writing that much and you're not sleeping and it's just like just all the shit that's happening, you know, kids and it's, it's just hard, you know, like. That was a really, really tough period. And then ultimately I got through it, got both scripts in. I mean, you know, I, I really wish I could revisit Five Brothers because um, there's still more with that draft that I think could have been um, better. Bucci Man is, is, you know, I thought turned out pretty good as a script. Um, you know, it was a great book. And then um, I'm, I'm still proud of the script, even though it didn't get made. Um, you know, that happens. Um, but I learned a lot about it's not a, it's not a failure and in, in that I got both drafts in, but it's a failure in terms of like, I needed to have a different approach. I, I, you know, and so sometimes when you get overwhelmed or you take too many things on at once, I'm a lot better now about how I go about 
what I'm doing. I'm a lot better about my pre-work. You know, of course, you're going to hear from a lot of people about like, okay, I don't do any free work. I don't do any drafts if I don't get paid, all that other shit, right? I view it the way that Kobe Bryant viewed practice. Kobe Bryant was famous for getting up at four o'clock in the morning and basically practicing for three or four hours way before he got to the Lakers facility. And by doing that for three to five years, he eventually got so far past anybody in the league that like it was insane. And so my version of doing that is like, if I'm interested in a project, you know, I'll start outlining. I'll outline before I do a pitch. I'll write a scriptment, you know, now before um, anything is inked. And people, you know, of course, my my manager, they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, that's too much time. I'm like, because the problem is, if you don't do that, if you don't know what you're going to write and how you're going to approach it, A, when you pitch the studio or you pitch, you're not really going to know what you're doing. Or even worse, you'll get the job if you half-ass the pitch but are charismatic, and then you'll get the money, and then you know I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing, and there's a time clock, and you don't deliver. So it's almost like I, I'm going to write either way. It's like boxing. You know, you got to be prepped for, way before you step in the ring. You got to stay in shape. And so outlining and figuring these things out before I even get the chance to pitch a gig and ultimately doing it, sometimes they don't work. Sometimes they reject your pitch. I mean, I I, I did a deck for a um, a John Wick spinoff. I'm, I, I, I fucking love then kick my ass, but it didn't happen. But, you know, it was a it was a good muscle to, 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 to try to work on, you know, so pre-work and working and and structure and and thinking about how you're going to do something in the outlining um that's the job you know yeah writing dialogue writing the script that that's all that's ice that's ice cream and frosting the cake is prep the cake is figuring out how characters interact and and scriptments and and all the shit that I fucking hate doing, but you you know we're not all Quentin Tarantino, so so it's like no one's just gonna just like okay just because you have an idea you know we're gonna make we're gonna let you make your movie, and I'm not denigrating Quentin at all. Quentin has earned that because every he's the only he's still the only person that can every single time he a script of his gets out the entire town shuts down just to read. He's the only person that in this current in this modern Hollywood that has that kind of power. You know, um, but that's the thing is, is like you have to learn how to make the process um, part of what you do. Um, and I, I think that that's really important, putting in that work. I mean, because, you know, that's the thing. It's like when you get to that upper echelon that you aspire to get to, if you want to be in the world that, you know, Michael Green and and Zach Balin and, and some of the people like they're like, how, how like how do they get to that level? Like, you know, it's because they it's, it's not about representation. You know, it's because they're fucking closers. They're ready. You know, you don't have to like the same way you don't have to ask Kobe to practice. You know, you don't have to ask the upper echelon guys to be ready for what the gig is. It's not about fair. It's about preparation. It's about focus. Even when sometimes, man, the wolf's at the fucking doors, even when sometimes you're waiting on that check, even when sometimes business affairs takes three to five months to to fucking get to your deal, you know, 
it's something that Thelonious Monk said is like, you got to stay in shape because the worst thing in the world is to wait to wait for a gig, finally get the gig. And then you're not in shape, meaning like you're not ready to play. It's it's tragic at that point. So you have to find inner motivation um, and it can't just be the paycheck. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and it hurts because as a writer, even at the upper, even at the t- highest level, sometimes it's, you know, you got to find ways to to stay motivated. You have to find ways to focus, you know, because um, it doesn't get easier. It gets harder. And I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, cause there are a lot of people who are like, well, I can't get an agent. I can't do this. And what's he talking about? But like, uh, I'm, I'm telling you, that's the worst part of the job is you stick to, with this. You eventually get to the places you want to go. And then all to, all of a sudden you realize that you feel exactly the same way that you did when you weren't getting paid for this and nothing has changed. And so the only thing to focus on is your approach, your attitude and how you embrace the suck, so to speak. I, I love how you're addressing some of this stuff because I've talked about it a few to the you know the people that I men- mentor about. They write a script and they think they need to sell that script and that if they don't sell that script, their world is over. And then maybe they write a second script and the, they go through the same process. And I'm like, you could write a hundred scripts and sell none of those scripts, but no part of that process was wasted. We are not, some, some people compare us to architects building spec houses. We're more like first chair at Carnegie Hall. In order to get to first chair at Carnegie Hall, you are playing a shitload of piano or violin and no pianist or violin player or cello cellist or whatever is begrudging playing the cello at four in the morning. They're not begrudging those notes that go into the universe. And I think that you are sort of leaning into the idea of like, all that work is valuable. But I do want to come back to the words you say, because I've said a similar thing. Like you said, this job sucks. And I will tell people in a weird way, the job we have is the best job in the world and it's the worst job in the world. And they happen at exactly the same time often. So you're dealing with this polarity. Well, well, well you know, everybody before they become a showrunner, they're like, oh, my God, the president of the studio knows my name and has my phone number. Oh, my God, the president of the studio knows my name and has my phone number. <laughs> you know, it's 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 you got to be real careful what you ask for. You know, um, you got to be uh, strong. You have to be focused. Um, you have to figure out ways to take care of yourself. Um, I think that that's not talked enough about health, um, you know, um, because it affects how you're able to do your job. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that I've licked it cause I'm still like, I need to figure out how to get more sleep. I do. But at the same time, it's like, um, you know, for me, um, I remember when I first started writing for Southland, um, being in the John Wells room, which always is a, is a privilege and a beautiful thing to be in a, in a, in a writer's room, you know, around John Wells. Um, you know, he had, he had a popcorn machine in the room and, you know, there was soda on tap <laughs> and, you know, you, you eating popcorn, drinking soda. And then put, once you become a showrunner, you know, anyone in the Luke Cage room could tell you how much I love Mexican Coca-Cola, you know what I'm saying? And so like you, are drinking a lot of soda you're not really taking care of your, of your diet like i think because i've had everything from uh, current apple watch but to back to fitbits and everything when i became a showrunner i went from averaging seven hours of sleep to about three and a half four 
you do that for a number of years, you do that for five, six years, it fucks with you in ways that you just don't even understand. And so like, like I always said about snowfall, um, you know, my, my friend, John Singleton wrote and directed movies for over two decades, three, three years of snowfall killed him. You know, you really got to watch out for, for it's because it, it's an insidious silent killer. And so, you know, that was one of the reasons why um, I started running and, and I'm still running and, you know, um, I'm still in the process of like, you know, losing more weight and, uh, you know, um, just because it, it affects how you write. It, it, it affects everything, you know. And so you have to find the balance because the motherfuckers that you work with and work for are not going to look out for you in that respect. And they want results. And so the thing is that whether you're a screenwriter, whether you're on a television show, whether you're running a television show, you have to figure out how to beat the clock without beating yourself up. And the other thing about it is that budget and all the different issues with with everything that happens, uh, all that shit, ultimately it comes down to scripts. The more scripts you have done that you can prep, the easier it is to hold on to your job and to alleviate all the other pressures. But when you're dealing with all the different questions and problems and you also have outlines in those scripts, that's just a recipe for disaster. So part of what the job is is figuring out how to doing prep work way before the job starts so that when you're going into the room, first starting your room, people have things to talk about so you can start building story as early as you can so that you can get ahead of the beast that is going to be waiting for you because that's the only way that you're ever going to achieve any kind of balance, honestly. So, I mean, I love, I've, I've been, you know, I've known you for a few years now. I see you every, you know, I've seen you after your marathon. I've been tracking you online, running the marathon. And I really do believe that, you know, you're onto something when you say this job takes everything from you and the stronger you can be physically and mentally the better you're going to do, whether you're giving up sugar, you're eating right. Like we all tend to abuse ourselves because this job is hard and you forget, you think it's all mental and everything matters. Um, But unfortunately we're getting, you know, closer to the end of this podcast, the beginning. And I want to get a couple of questions about Luke Cage uh, because big fan of Luke Cage, you know, that I'm a big fan of Luke Cage. I, uh, the, I love that show. I would like to think, you know, that that show, you know, on many levels, change the trajectory of your career but i would love to know the you know you know the single biggest success for you from that show and the single biggest failure for you from that show um my it's it's well i mean i love every aspect of that show of luke cage um i love um the writer producers i worked with um, I loved, um, you know, all the actors. Um, I loved, I mean, every editor's production. I mean, the whole thing, it was beautiful. Like I'm, I'm proud of every single episode of the, of, of that show. And, um, really, honestly, we were gearing towards a, I think a really kick-ass third season, you know, and the, of course, you know, Deadline Hollywood said that it was creative differences. Honestly, having been inside of it, more of what it really was, was that, um, the second that Bob Iger called Disney the Netflix killer, that was kind of at that time, it was going to be pretty much impossible for, you know, Netflix and Marvel to, to, to work out a, um, 
a, a deal that would have allowed um, the show to continue. Um, so I think that it was more business stuff that killed it than it was creative because we, we were seven episodes in, you know, like I, 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 301 is like, I, I like, I, I, you know, it was one of my favorite scripts, you know, like it's, that was the thing. It was hard. So I don't really consider that a failure, but I really do wish we had the opportunity um, to to do that and to complete that story, because I, I think it would have been a really great season. Um, probably disappointment. Uh, you know, I'm still kicking myself over fucking up the Jamaican accents, you know, as as much as growing up in, you know, in Connecticut around, you know, in, in, in near Hartford, which has which has a, a, a huge West Indian community and being in New York and yeah, as a hip hop journalist and being around the music all the time, you know, um, I was so focused on trying to get the history right and the culture right that I made certain concessions with the accents and as a result created by accident, like this hybrid accent that's not really accurate and that's became a problem, uh, you know. And again, I sincerely apologize to the Jamaican community because um, it kills me that um, that there was so much of it. And we even filmed um, episode, uh, what was that? I think it was episode uh, 11. Um, it was 10 or 11. We actually filmed in, in Kingston. Um, the one with with the, um, the, the Bushmaster flashbacks in terms of his childhood, we actually filmed in Kingston. Oh. But, um, you know, there's still elements that it's just like, I, you know, that was my arrogance in terms of saying like, okay, you know, um, I didn't want to emulate the fake Jamaican accents that Mario Van Peebles had in Jaws 3. And what do I do? <laughs> you know, no one remembers Jaws 3. But if, if you go on Twitter, uh, you know, people go ham on, on, on the accents, even though they, they love the character of Bushmaster and what we were able to do, you know, so. Uh, that would, I think, be the, you know, I don't want to call it a failure as much as it is a, um, you know, an opportunity for growth. I, mean, I, I would have done it differently, you know, just in terms of how I cast, not how I cast, but the process in terms of, you know, um, being more authentic with certain things, you know, um, I, I would have done differently. Um, because the thing about a show where you film, where all episodes have to be delivered at once, um, you know, you can't change any direction the way that you could if you had a show that, you know, you're releasing them every episodes every week. And so if there's a reaction, you can go and change things. You know, it's not like that. I mean, that, that, that that's the thing about the way the Netflix process is, is because of the fact that you're going to deliver all the shows all at once. They're all going to be mixed at once. They're all going to be translated in all these different languages at once. This makes the process different. But uh, but yeah, like uh, I still am very proud of Luke Cage. I, I think people don't realize who you know aren't doing this job how much people do strive for authenticity, and there are so many things that get in the way of that. That's not necessarily the intent of the creator. Whether it's a note we've received studio notes on shows set in Hawaii that they don't understand the pigeon English from Hawaii, and we need to change it. And yet that's authentic to the thing. So then you make adjustments and then you get complaints that it's not authentic. So we've, I've gone through the same thing or on a doc medical show or a cop show where you have to make adjustments for certain things. And then you get yelled at by the doctors, the nurses or the things. And you're like, 
the end of the day, we're making a 42 minute TV show where we have to make concessions. But, you know, you've, you've given us so many interesting stories th throughout this podcast. But unfortunately, it is time for the question that we ask everybody who comes on our podcast, which is if you would give one piece of advice to somebody joining our business, what would it be? Ah, uh, save money because things like these strikes happen and um, you have to be prepared for those long segues. I, you know, I, I think um, when people first get in the guild, when they finally qualify to be asked to join the writer's guild, um, they think, okay, great. I've written something. I'm successful enough where I've sold something. Maybe I even qualify for health insurance, you know, but those valleys can be wide. It can be a long time before something else sells, before other opportunities happen. Um, what's happening right now with the decimation of writer's rooms, you know, um, and the fact that so many jobs now, like, I, I, I don't know what's happening right now, but those few jobs that are in production, the upper levels are going to be hired before, you know, the entry staff levels. And so as a result, it's like, you know, it's hard to perpetuate oneself or have a career in the same way that one could, um, you know, previously in the television side of the business. Um, and then on the feature side, you know, it's like, how do you break into that? It's, it's because, there, you know, it's like, who knows what works anymore? You know, because even right now, even, even Marvel, you know, um, on the feature side, it has not on a slump, but is trying to trying to figure itself out, you know? So um, saving is one thing. I think the other thing ultimately is, again, staying in shape, not just in physical shape, which is important, which helps you give the stamina, but I mean writing shape. I mean, you know, to me, I, I liken it to boxing, um, you know, and sometimes people say, well, why do you give so much, why do you give your advice so freely? And I'm like, well, because, you know, it's a, it's like training for boxing. I mean, there's only, you know, there's only been so many different punches, you know, are you really going to get up and run three to five miles every day? Are you really going to go to the gym? Are you, are you going to hit the heavy bag? Are you going to, are you going to do all the calisthenics? Are you going to do all those things? Because I can tell you how to do all those things, but are you really going to do it? And that's why I say I don't really care about talking about structure or talking about the different techniques because I'm not giving anything away because either you really are going to do these things or you're not. And so, like, that's why I give it freely because, you know, you get out in the world and this shit is hard. Like, you know, one of the analogies I always make is, is look, it's like, so I'll be doing a panel somewhere and someone will say like, um, you know, if I, I want to be a writer, like what kind of software should I use or, you know, what should I write with? And I say, look, I mean, you can use any software you want or not. You can write by, you know, I, I sometimes write in on, on legal pads, Moleskine, you know, I, I have a whole process of how I eventually get to the actual typing of script. But, you know, I say, look, you, you can have a, a, a $50, $50 to $75 folding table. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need a special computer, 
But then I get to the part where I talk about the chair and I'm like, well, yeah, you want to spend $950 to $1,000 on, on, on one of these chairs. And they're like, well, why do you want to spend so much money on a chair? Because I'm like, because you had to sit in that motherfucker 9, 10, 11, 12, 14 hours sometimes. And if your chair is uncomfortable, you are not going to sit down to actually finish the stuff. So it's important that like, it's not a luxury item. It's really writing is ass to seat. Or, you know, if you have, if you have a standing desk, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's foot in, and you're up, but be the, what I'm saying is like, it's, you have to put in the time. Um, I, I think today's, I, I tweeted, what did I tweet? I think, I think I tweeted, I said, shut the fuck up, sit down and write. <laughs> it was really a note to myself because um, I had phone calls and I was just like, that was me to myself saying, shut the fuck up, sit down and write. But it was kind of been funny because when I put it on Twitter, there's all these different reactions. It's like, oh, why are you screaming at me? Okay, fine. But ultimately, that, that that's what it is. Shut the fuck up, sit down and write. There's no, there's no way around it. Cheo Hodari Coker, I've been wanting you on this podcast for a very long time. You did not disappoint. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing so many of your stories with, with all of our listeners. No, thank you for having me. And, um, you know, now I'm going to shut the fuck up. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss, brought to you by Scriptation. Thank you, as ever, to James Launch for the music, and thank you to our loyal listeners. And if there's any showrunners out there who want to hear their fellow showrunners abused uh, and ruffled around and put under the microscope, so you can hear their stories of rejection, failure, and adversity, please send them our way. If you are interested in following us on social media, no, I've lost track. <laughs> I am at NEBSLIN on Twitter or X or whatever Elon Musk now calls it. And thanks to Elon Musk, I'm also at Noah Evslin on Hive, Spoutable, Blue Sky, Threads, Mastodon, MySpace, Friendster, and I'm sure a thousand more.